Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, Denver, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Carrie Figdor, Robert Talese, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Alice Crary, University Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research, and Lori Gruen. William Griffin Professor of Philosophy at Wesleyan University. Their new book, Animal Crisis, A New Critical Theory, is just out from Polity Press. As we lose more individual animals and entire species to catastrophic climate change, habitat destruction, toxic dumping, and other human activities, it becomes increasingly difficult to register the full scope of the crisis. In Animal Crisis, Crary and Gruen reinvigorate the discourse of animal ethics with a critical theoretical approach that gives us new ways of thinking about what is owed to animals. By theorizing the links between human and non-human animal liberation, they offer ways of understanding why it can be so hard to see, hear, or feel the value and dignity of the animals right in front of us. Offering practices of interspecies solidarity, Crary and Gruen show us that we can transform the crisis we are in, but we must dismantle human supremacism to even connect with the need. Lori Gruen and Alice Crary, welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Um, well, let's dive right in. I'd love to hear about um, how you came to write this book and especially how you came to write this book together. Well, um, I'll start. This is Lori. Um, and we, um, we both were very interested in animals before we began working on the book together. I became interested in animal ethics when I was an undergraduate, which was a really long time ago. Um, And I got turned on to animal ethics in a philosophy class where we read, of course, Peter Singer's Animal Liberation. And I instantly became a vegetarian and realized that it didn't make sense for me not to become vegan. That is somebody who tries hard to avoid animal products altogether. And this was in the like, I don't know, the early 1980s. I even convinced Singer um, to make the case for veganism when I was helping him revise Animal Liberation for the second edition. And at, a, at that time, I had already um, graduated um, f- from undergraduate, and I had started graduate school, but decided to leave graduate school to do full-time activist work in Washington, D.C. Um, so I've had a long history with thinking about animal ethics from a fairly traditional point of view. Um, I also had a lot of time in the animal movement, which was also deeply influenced by the utilitarian um, view of animal ethics. And fortunately, when I went back to graduate school after spending about six years doing activist work, um, I was able to dive into feminist philosophy. And in that moment, I was um, able to bring my concerns about social justice 
into my philosophical work. And I found that my utilitarian leanings at that time weren't really serving me um, at all. Um, and so what, um, what I ended up doing was sort of moving away from thinking about what we now call sort of more standard or traditional approaches to animal ethics. Um, I'll, let, I'll let Alice say a little bit now. Thanks, Lori. So uh, my own path to animal ethics was, I think, comparatively really standard. Just as a child, like almost any number of children, I was interested in the treatment of animals, for instance, curious about the fact that my grandfather, my mother's father, would refuse to eat chicken as a result of a visit to a chicken slaughterhouse as a young man even though he ate other meats. I would have explored vegetarianism if I hadn't been intimidated by my family's view that it was rude and self-indulgent. Anyway, as an undergraduate, I was first trying to find my way in philosophy. I had the luck to come across the work of and meet the philosopher Cora Diamond. And one thing particularly important for me was Diamond's pro-animal response to Singer's animal liberation that Lori was just talking about. She has this amazing 1978 paper, Eating Meat and Eating People, where she challenges fundamental assumptions that inform his animals-oriented utilitarianism. Anyway, I went on to write articles and teach animal ethics. I wrote a book, about how humans and animals enter moral thought. And over time, I shifted my attention from moral philosophy to social philosophy. I was connecting my ethical work with political and institutional structures that get in the way of justly valuing human and more than human life. And at the same time, I started to work with a number of scholar activists like Lori, who were involved in the animal protectionist movement. Now, as far as the specific history of our book, Lori and I arrived at the idea of the book together, and we actually tell a brief version of the story at the book's opening. We were both living in Princeton. It was the spring of 2018. We'd been invited to write a review essay for the field of animal ethics you know, the kind of essay that just um, is tasked with giving you a survey with trends within the field. And we thought it would be a great thing to do. We'd known each other professionally for a while, and we thought it would be really helpful to write something together. And we actually got to work on this um, projected review essay meeting in various places to plan. And that was when we got the idea for the book. We started talking about the kinds of concerns we were bringing to animal ethics in what Laurie was just describing as the traditional sense. And it became clear to us both that it would be more meaningful to write a short, urgent plea to radically rethink animal ethics, um, both with regard to the philosophical field, but also its realization within social protestism. And I, and, and I might add that, I mean, obviously these, these are sort of a bit of biographical sort of 
discussion of how we came to write the book, but really what's going on around us was part of the, the motivation. We were, we're really deeply concerned about, you know, what's called the sixth mass, ex- mass extinction, for example. There's an estimated thousand, um, or sorry, that, that there's like a thousand times faster extinction rates that are happening due to humans um, than ever before. We were, um, as we were writing or as we were thinking, these horrible fires um, took off. Um, and burned in Australia in 2019 and 2020. And another billion animals were um, burned in those fires. And so, and all sorts of sort of extreme climate events were happening. And we just really thought that given our anthropogenic activities across the globe, we're really plunging the planet into a devastating um, crisis. So, Um, One of the other things that we were really interested in doing is thinking not just about the environmental crisis, but also a crisis um, in our distorted sense of ourselves and our relationships with each other, other animals, and the planet. Um, And we were really um, concerned, and this is something we take up seriously in the book, that um, these distortions... Um, also sort of permeate and are authorized by these standard views in animal ethics. Um, And they also, these distortions, structure a lot of philosophical discussion of social justice. And so part of what we try to do um, in the book is think through these distortions to try to reveal them um, and unpack them. And we thought that if we did this together, um, we would be able to um, enrich this perspective and also enrich our own commitments to interrogate these structures that are destroying animals, marginal humans, and the planet itself. Yeah, and so part of how you help your readers take on the scope of the crisis that we're in um, is by starting with by talking about orangutans. Um, so I'd love to hear more about how you use um, that sort of lens of the orangutan, looking at what's happening to orangutans to help us take on this massive crisis that you've already started sketching. Yeah, well, um, the situation that orangutans are facing at the moment um, is really quite dire. And unfortunately, they're not alone. So people that are native to Borneo and Sumatra, Indonesia, where orangutans live, as well as a lot of other forest-dwelling animals um, are, are being devastated primarily by the horrifying palm oil industry. And, that, and we talk about this in the first chapter because it's important to just get a, a handle on the kind of devastation that's occurring. Um, an estimated, I think, three acres of forests are cut every minute to make room for palm oil monocrop plantations. Um, And palm oil is sort of in incredibly insatiable demand. It's in almost everything from like vegan food to regular food to soups, cosmetics, 
shampoo, candies. In fact, I was teaching um, uh, my Humans, Animals, Nature course in the women's prison, and I'm doing it remotely. And I was talking about palm oil, and they all picked up these little packages of candies that they had. And sure enough, there was palm oil in all of those. Um, so Borneo and Sumatra, Indonesia, provide about 86% of the world's supply of um, of palm oil. And what's happening in Indonesia is that multinational corporations um, got went in, slashed and burned the rainforest to grow these palm oil trees, these palm oil trees, these palm trees, um, and hundreds of thousands of orangutans have have died since 2000 and in the in the forest fires that they use to get rid of the native forests um, there's all of the smoke and ash and people have um, died prematurely from inhaling it as an estimate of about a hundred thousand people have died from the burning of the forest to plant these palm oil plantations and so part of the reason we start with this is that it really does reveal one of the central themes of the book, which is um, that capitalism and colonialism and corporate greed are destroying human and animal lives. And it's just one instance of this, you know, devastation across the globe that I was just talking about, global climate change and extinction and inequality um, that continues to just um, go on at a frightening pace. And that there's there's a, uh, a little... Um, I don't know if you call it a meme or what you call it exactly, but there's this I, idea that we came across and we mentioned um, in the first chapter, and that's that um, if we killed each other at the same rate that we kill other animals, we humans would be extinct in 17 days. And so the book that, you know, uses the story and um, and really the rich description, right, of the interrelationship between the harm being done to animals and the harm being done to humans um, in these vast global systems. Um, that's the setup. And then you turn to animal ethics um, to help us think about animal suffering. And I was thinking also vice versa, right, that thinking about animal suffering as a way that you're going to make us think differently about animal ethics, I think. And so there you talk about pigs. And so how do these pigs help us engage in ideology critique? And then, then, then why do we need ideology critique for animal ethics? This is Alice. And I just want to say that's such a great question. And it's such a great question that I think you, that we have to go through a number of layers to give a good answer to the question of why, when we're thinking about animals, we need ideology critique. One important layer, if you want to put it that way, has to do with the need to appreciate um, that there are ideologies that make it hard to see individual cases in which animals are mistreated. And then moving to another level, once you get in view individual cases, if you're going to appreciate their significance, you also need to do the critical work to see that the mistreatment isn't accidental and one-off, but structural and systemic in the sense of being built into our forms of social organization. And even that's not everything. Even after 
taking these steps, we might think that ideology critique is only something we need if we want to get a view of human-produced social structures that harm animals and block our view of them. But we might think it's a fairly common view that seeing animals themselves is really a plain matter of passive perceptual receptivity. So it's important also to say um, that unequivocally active work needs to be done to see animals themselves. Um, so you brought up the case of pigs, which is one of the ones we start our book with. And um, here I'll use it as an illustration or, or the case of industrial animal agriculture slightly more generally, which is the context in which we're talking about pigs, to illustrate these points, which can seem a little bit um, abstract, but they turn out to be quite concrete. So at first, if you're talking about ideological obstacles um, that keep you from seeing individual cases, um, and you're thinking of pigs in a slaughterhouse, we can think about how in industrial animal agriculture there are, and it, it's a little, again, I've got to do a kind of listing. There's there are physical practices, legal practices, also social practices, material practices, linguistic practices that keep us from seeing what's actually being done to animals. So to make it, like I said, concrete, you have industrial slaughterhouses, they're physically hidden, they're in remote buildings of generic appearance. Um, with regard to the legal side, there are laws to keep activists from telling the public about what's going on. The products of the slaughterhouses, this is material, they're objects that generally don't look like animal parts. Linguistically, we use words like bacon and hamburger and pork that disguise the fact that we're talking about the dead bodies of animals. And slightly, um, slightly more complicated or harder to grasp, but really important, the social dimension has to do with how existing social hierarchies can contribute to disguising what goes on in industrial slaughterhouses um, with individuals who are employed on the kill floors of the slaughterhouses. Largely in the U.S. today, they're members of marginalized racial immigrant and economic groups. And they surely do sometimes call attention to abuses they witness. But in general, for those reasons, are poorly positioned to make sure that the problems they're talking about are taken seriously and addressed. And having said all that, that's just um, one question about ideology critique. But And I'll, I'll be a little briefer with the second part, but there's also the question of needing to see not just individual cases like the mistreatment of animals in slaughterhouses, but to see that this mistreatment is structural. And, and here it helps to turn, and this is one thing we do in Animal Crisis, to critical social theories that ask us to see, running back centuries, how market-organized societies have stressed production and profit over social reproduction in a way that involves using animals and the rest of more than human nature as resources and instruments 
and also at the same time using in the same way um, the reproductive work of women, for instance, and things like the care and subsistence work of racialized and indigenous people. And taking that social theoretical view helps to explain why um, not just in factory farms, but in many other sites at which human beings harm animals. It helps to explain why the mistreatment of animals is systematic and not one-off. And interestingly, it explains more than that because it also shows that social forces that tie together um, that the, the social forces that hurt animals are tied together with the oppression of marginalized human beings. Um, and that's a great a big theme of our book. It goes a little beyond your question, but one, one main claim of the book is that these forms of harm, harm to animals, oppression of vulnerable human beings, if we're going to resist them meaningfully, we have to do it together. Yeah, and this is the book then has to grapple, as you've already foreshadowed, utilitarianism is so huge to animal ethics that you you engage in a critique of utilitarianism um, in order to help develop this, this project. And um, this critique unfolds in relationship to cows and helps us to see these hierarchies that you've both alluded to. These um, you, you talk about them as unacknowledged and value-laden hierarchies that operate within utilitarianism. Um, so let's talk about how utilitarianism contributes to distorted moral reflection. This is Laurie again. Um, well, there's a lot. There's a lot that I want to say here, but mm-hmm. I could spend a lot of time, sort of as a as a recovering utilitarian. Talking about <laughs> yeah. I'll try to uh, I'll try to stay on on the topics that we address in the in the book, and it was really important to do that because, as I said, um, that there's a sense in which utilitarianism, because of um, the way it's informed animal activism to a large extent, um, is is really central in in traditional animal ethics, although, of course, it's not the only thing, and we talk about other theories as well. But it is a very important theory, and we think um, it is a kind of moral theory that both creates and sustains a number of really uh, damaging distortions. So let me just give you, as briefly as I can, some of them. So one of the ways in which I think that um, utilitarianism contributes to the distorted moral reflection that you asked about is that they have this idea that there's a value neutral point of view that they often call the point of view of the universe following on um, Henry Sidgwick's work. Um, In fact, I think there's a book out that actually uses that title, the point of view of the universe. And, and we, we argue in our book that this, this, um, sort of really distorts the sense in which valuing always occurs within particular contexts and the value of animal lives and human lives for that matter. Um, While, as we've said, hard to bring into focus and it takes a lot of work to do so, um, but that value is there if we work to see it. And it's not something that comes from an outside detached point of view. Um, just a plug for Alice's book again, Inside Ethics, is a really rich and, and terrific way of seeing that point. Um, 
Um, but also I wanted to say that um, part of the distortion of utilitarianism too, a second thing, is that it can't properly value the lives of humans and animals. So, um, and one of the ways that you could see this is their view about killing and how hard it is for utilitarians to talk about killing um, and to, to say what's wrong with killing. And so in this chapter, we discuss this um, cow named Norma. We discussed a number of cows, as you mentioned, but I, I think I'm going to just say a little bit about Norma. And All the daughter. cows are lovely. I just want to put in a plug for the cows. I really <laughs> appreciate the stories you tell about the, the cows. So just people should read it for definitely the cow stories, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so we talk about this one um, mother cow named Norma and her daughter Nina. And her daughter Neem, Nina. It's a tongue twister. Norma, Nina. Um, and Norma um, was being used on this um, fancy, really fancy, what so-called humane dairy, um, where they make what they call ethical cheese, which I always thought is kind of interesting. And anyway, so... So she was on the dairy and she gave birth to Nina, um, who would also have made some of this ethical cheese um, because female cows that are born to dairy cows usually um, are brought into service of dairy production. Um, but they take the babies away right away. And Norma hurt a worker when they tried to take Nina away from her. And so part of the reason that they took Nina away, obviously, or any baby away from their mothers is that they're dairy producers. And they the dairy goes for human consumption, not for infant cow consumption. So the cows are taken away very close to the time that they're born, and then they're fed formula, um, usually bottle fed. Um, now, male calves, um, and we talk about a male calf in this in this chapter too, but I'll leave you to read it. But anyway, they're usually considered surplus, and it um, it used to be that they would go in to be used for veal. Um, but once people got uh, became aware of just how cruel veal production was, uh, the demand for veal has dropped, and so one of the things that's happened is that these male calves in dairy industry, even in, even in the small local humane, so-called humane farms, um, it's just, you can't really do anything with these male calves. And it isn't often cost-effective to send them off to slaughter. So many of them are just left to starve. Um, and it's called what... Um, People have now, reporters have now reported that it's called this, the, the dairy industry's dirty little secret. Um, and so this is, this is a really, I think, intense story for people who aren't that familiar with dairy. I know a lot of people talk about not realizing that you need to have cows in con constant state of um, pregnancy and lactation and pregnancy again, and then more lactation and pregnancy again, and then more lactation. And people aren't often aware of the ways what happens to those, what happens to those baby cows? Um, utilitarians, sorry, I went off on my cow story, but I, I, I was going to talk about utilitarianism. So utilitarians um, have the view that since individual lives don't have value other than the utility or pleasure that they produce for some abstract calculus, um, that lives are more or less interchangeable and replaceable. And so Norma's 
was at this, you know, small farm. It wasn't a super industrialized dairy um, operation. And she was relatively happy. But um, given that Nina could replace her in making the milk that would lead people to enjoy um, these carefully crafted cheese um, and thus produce more happiness, pleasure, or utility, it would have been fine for the farm to send Norma to slaughter um, as they had planned to do um, when she hurt the worker who was trying to take her baby from her. And so as long as people you know, get a lot of pleasure in consuming these products. And as long as Norma was treated relatively well during her life and was killed painlessly, then from the point of view of the universe, her death wouldn't be objectionable. Um, And this is one of the, I think, really distorting um, influences of utilitarianism. Of course, this, this totally misses out also on the rich relationships that cows and their children have with one another, relationships that we've been able to see at sanctuaries for formerly farmed animals, which is where Norma and Nina and some of the other cows we talk about in the chapter are at Vine Sanctuary in Vermont. Um, If I have time, I just want to say one other thing um, that we think is really important for the whole book. Um, And that is, and I'll just be brief about this, but utilitarianism really operates squarely within existing unjust social arrangements and doesn't have the tools for the desperately needed social critique that Alice was just talking about. Um, And as a result, utilitarianism is not able to clearly or adequately address inequality. Um, To do that, to really clearly and adequately address inequality um, and to do it in an undistorted way involves recognition um, of and also visions of redress for the wrongs of the various structural injustices that um, lead to inequality. So it's, these are, these are the injustices that are the function of the very workings of these existing political institutions. It's not that the political institutions aren't working the way they're supposed to, they're working precisely the way they're supposed to. So it's not possible to understand what's at stake and demands for equality or justice without insight into that history and function of these injustices and these wrongs. And utilitarianism just doesn't have the tools to do that. Yeah, well, and it's interesting in that story because the reason Norma and Nina go to Vine is because the worker who was harmed wants them to, right? That's the request that the worker makes. And so there's this moment of like interspecies solidarity and a non-utilitarian calculation on the part of the worker, right? There's a, a response to Norma and Nina that the worker has that saves them. It's exactly right. Yeah, it's well, and it speaks to I think to the the multiple levels at which the book is working, right? That here I am being like, no, no, but let's talk more about Norma and Nina, right? And it's like, uh, but we're talking about these massive systems that that don't show us that we're in solidarity, yeah, or could be in solidarity. Um, well, so okay, octopuses. Um, they're one of the first animals I stopped eating. I just wanted to know because they were so obviously interesting and intelligent. You know, they they struck my teenage brain as like marvelous and magical. Um, and so you talk about them to talk about the importance of responsive attention. 
um, that the role of responsive attention for ethical reflection. So, so talk to us about these magical creatures. Awesome. So this is Alice again. Um, look, octopuses are fascinating in so many ways. We can't even begin to do the topic justice here. But um, I'll just start with one striking and relevant point. Um, the gulf dividing human beings and octopuses from our nearest evolutionary ancestor, we talk about this in the book, and it has been talked about by a lot of octopus authors but it's, and scientists, it's the, our nearest evolutionary ancestor is 600 million years back, uh, something like a very simple flattened worm. So I'm going to quote something that <laughs> philosopher of science and diver Peter Godfrey Smith says in his work on octopuses. But when we look at octopuses, minds or mental capacities, we are in effect witnessing how evolution made minds twice over. And so one reason octopuses turn out to be so fascinating is that they're conscious and unsurprisingly, given their evolutionary histories, have quite distinctive neurophysiology. So one lesson we learn is that neuroscience alone isn't going to settle questions of consciousness. So that's one of the ways you can start with, with octopuses and move in the direction um, when you're interested in animal minds and other mental, you know, a variety of mental capacities, turn to studies of animal behavior. And there's actually a chapter of our book that offers a kind of tour of 20th century um, studies of animal minds. Um, I'd have to sort of take them off things, but they're all familiar. Things like, you know, beha strong behaviors trends to anti-behaviorist reactions that include ethology and cognitive ethology and what we tend to think of as various recent thoughtful variations on cognitive ethology. And that leads, that is a direction into studies of animal behavior where one of the interesting things is that it's often an unspoken assumption that the behavior that in studying and in, in observing the behavior to which we have perceptual access cannot in itself be psychologically meaningful. And that assumption for philosophers is the source of really familiar philosophical problems about how skepticism about the minds of others is always possible. Um, but we're pushing back against that whether we're concerned with human beings or non-human animals, we think the assumption is belied by significant work showing that you need a stance informed by an appreciation of life forms in order to bring creatures' mental capacities into view. And just to get back to octopuses then, um, Within our book, we illustrate this in particular in reference to a 2020 Netflix documentary that people are likely to have seen called My Octopus Teacher. And it's it works for us like this. The filmmaker, um, his name is Craig Foster. He's pairing a voiceover with lush images of a female common octopus to whom he's developed an attachment and he dives to see her every day. 
and he talks about it's very the the language is explicitly romantic he talks about being overcome with feelings for the creature while also discussing and trying to interpret some of her more striking behaviors. So one reviewer of the film comes along and says, oh, hey, well, the emotional or motive takeaway sells short the scientific subject, um, so the film is only half good. <laughs> and we resisted this, and, and we did it with reference to philosophical traditions like the ones I was just referring to that show us that we need an engaged stance to bring aspects of creatures' minds into view. And we mean this, I mean, we use octopuses here for some of the reasons I've been talking about, but we mean it, we're suggesting that this applies to all animals, including human ones, not just to octopuses. And for just one further classic reference, which is very accessible and will be familiar to people, one classic reference has to be Jane Goodall's groundbreaking work with chimpanzees because, um, you know, she was famous for giving the chimpanzees she was studying names and not numbers, for attending to their social and emotional bonds, for forming such bonds with them herself, things for which she was criticized. But all of that turned out to be a route to a wonderfully revelatory account of chimpanzees' lives. Well, and so... You move from octopuses to rats, and um, you do have a very cute rat picture. <laughs> I just have to say, like, all the pictures are really wonderful, but the rat is... I didn't know you could rescue lab rats, so that was lovely to find out, yeah. Um, so, But rats are a really potent symbol of dehumanization, and this we know this. This is an important piece of critique that's been around for a while, but you give us this new lens to think about what the symbolism is doing. Um, and you do it through rethinking dignity. Um, and and rethinking dignity helps you connect in the book animal liberation and movements for human liberation. Um, so where, how does that connection work and how does it work through dignity? Yeah. Um... Thanks for that question. And I, I should say, I don't know that we did say, but there are um, images that we've used um, in before each chapter. And the rat, um, the rat picture is actually quite wonderful. But um, I think a lot of them are pretty wonderful. They're pretty great. Oh, yeah. They're very um, gentle for such a for such a hard book. The pictures are really, really draw you in to the heart of it. Oh, yeah, thanks. Can, can um, I just intervene before Lori goes and talks about rats and dignity, which is such an important topic, just to say that's really intentional about the book. Not that the, not that the images are gentle, although, although that's important in a way, but, but if you listen to the things we're talking about, about um, what it might be to see animals, um, the idea of positioning animals so that you respond to them in an image in various ways can be part of making them visible to you. And so the images that we have were intended to actually be part of the book's argument. That's right. I think that's a really important point um, that this the distortion that is so deep, um, we're hoping the images as well as our stories, as well as our theorizing and philosophizing will sort of help people um, work through that distortion. Um, and yeah, but let me talk about rats for a minute. Um, I think they are incredible animals. I myself rescued um, a rat 
a while ago. They, they don't live very long, so it's a hard relationship to be in. Um, but our relationships with them are really complex. They can be pets, like my rat Taylor was, um, but they're also mostly known as tools for research or they're known to be pests. But they're also symbols, as you were pointing out, Sarah. Um, and in our chapter, um, we we used rats to talk about animal dignity um, because they're often animals that are the most prominently thought to lack dignity, right? So it was it was um, really important to think about dignity and rats. I mean, calling a human a rat is one of the key ways that humans are stripped of their dignity, and that happens um, both in context of human incarceration, but also in general. So what? we do in this chapter is trace um, the continued sort of denial of rat dignity to the persistence of the systemic denigration, if you will, of animals um, that is so important for the machine to keep on as it does in advanced capitalist societies. And so the dehumanization um, and the rhetoric of dehumanization that goes along with the quote unquote unwanted or um, sort of dirty human um, and linking them with rats or other hated animals is often, as we know, a prelude to all sorts of atrocities. So um, this denigration of animals um, is deployed in really specific ways to be devalue certain humans. So like, for example, and I'm sorry, this is offensive and it is very offensive, but I'm going to say it because it's important that, you know, comparing black people to apes or Jewish people to vermin is as sadly as familiar as rats and sewers. Um, So it's a, it's a very sort of familiar, but objectionable, tool to compare humans to rats or other animals as a way of of, um, engaging in a form of dehumanization. So it's not really difficult um, in this sense to understand why um, many people, um, particularly members of oppressed human groups, argue that they're not animals, right? This is so. It's very much a part of a dialectic where um, those in power take on the sort of rat and other despised animals and attach it to humans that are also spo- supposed to be um, despised in that process. And the response, not surprisingly, is that we're not animals. So gr- groups of humans. Um, who are compared to animals um, try very much to suggest, no, we're not, we're human beings, we're distinct from, we have precedence over animals. And so we're trying to get higher on uh, some hierarchy um, and we will maintain a different a distance between ourselves and all other animals. Um, the tendency, though, to treat animals and the rest of nature as sort of nothing more than resources, as we were talking about earlier, sort of is is a very central part of how late capitalism works. So efforts at human liberation that insist on continuing to debase animals and deny animals dignity are, in some ways 
counterproductive because they rehearse this very logic, right? According to which any human compared to animals is rightly considered like a free resource um, and open to various forms of exploitation. So if emancipatory strategies um, are going to um, sort of be tied to the subjugation of animals without questioning the larger structures, um, it's going to just reinforce this denial of dignity and these problematic hierarchies. So there's a danger that for all our intentions to the contrary, we're going to be contributing to the perpetuation of these um, grotesque social arrangements that continually, regularly, systematically reproduce the notion that some human beings are disposable. And so to put um, rats in particular into a place where we can start to think about their dignity, um, we hope will throw into relief some of these damaging um, hierarchical moves that are unintentionally made. Yeah, and that just the book makes such a case for being repro- reproduced in so many different places. They, they sort of... Um all these hierarchies are, are reinforcing to, to one another. Um, and this, and we've, this theme has already come up, but now I'm going to talk about how perception isn't passive. Um, and part of how animal suffering, um, comes from their hyper visibility. So the ways that they're made, um, not sort of visible to us in, in an ethical, attentive way, but in this hyper-visibility that obscures how we see them. Um, and one of the examples you give is the colorful plumage that parrots have, that that, gets, that becomes hyper-visible in the animal's um, creaturely life, right, gets lost, um, is invisible. Um, and so can you talk about those active perceptual practices, how they are... Um, they are, they are causing animal suffering, right? Because they get in the way of seeing animals. Yeah, you, I mean, you brought up the idea of hypervisibility and it's, um, it's a really important topic. I, I think it's, it's maybe helpful even to think of it as a kind of paradox where the idea is you can have social arrangements that at one and the same time make members of a group extremely visible in the sense that they're on display and like the parrots you mentioned that we talk about and and subject to heightened scrutiny and at the same time they're invisible in the sense that their concerns aren't attended to aren't regarded as important um and we're certainly inheriting from excellent work that's been done on these apparent paradoxes within different critical social theories theories there's really good work on hypervisibility and critical race theory and critical disability studies um, but it's an important topic too if you want to understand um, what's involved in registering the lives seeing the lives of non-human animals around us what kind of um, exercise that is um, one case, which is, again, related to parrots, but also to lots of other animals that we talk about is zoos, which I know lots of people think of as the most benign and um, friendly cultural institution. And we talk, pick up on 
um, longstanding conversations about how zoos actually miseducate the public about the animals that they put on display in exactly the sense I was just describing, making them utterly or hyper-visible while falsely inviting us to see them as mere objects for observation or encouraging us to think that they're there just to be looked at as our pleasure. Um, there's actually a great deal more to be said about modern zoos, um, but zoos aren't the only places where animals are made invisibly hypervisible. In the book, we also talk about some photographic and filmic practices with animals, as well as some industrial farms that claim to make their operations totally visible to the public, say, I mean, the metaphor that's often used is putting up glass walls, um, um, but they're inviting the public in to see what they're doing in different places. And what unites these different cases, these cases that we discuss in the book, is that the viewers in question, the viewers at zoos, the viewers at of certain kinds of films, viewers um, uh, at these slaughterhouses that are opening their doors, they're invited to delude themselves into thinking that they're getting a, a view of the animals before them that is completely unmediated. So it has to be accurate. That's the idea. And this illusion is, as you intimate in your question, it's one that's really actively sustained. And um, seeing animals clearly um, is, as we talk about when we're talking about animal minds and animal suffering, it's also a very active exercise calling for engaged and solicitous attention. So if you wanted to make one connection within um, the conversation that we've had today, you could go back and say, oh, well, surely a photograph that just takes a picture of an animal shows it. And then think about the case of my octopus teacher and things that we're saying about how actually one of the ways you get to see a creature is through a really engaged and um, um, affectionate mode of approach to them of the sort represented by that documentary. Yeah, that's a, it's a nice tie back to sort of make the case for the way that documentary positions itself for, yeah. Um, so ticks and mosquitoes, I, there's all this warm up with, with pigs and cows and rats. And then um, we got ticks and mosquitoes. I found this challenging because mosquitoes in particular, I was aware of just their, um, how challenging they are, how many diseases they've given to people and how um, devastating that it's been for humans. So I was interested to see how these these two were going to appear. Um, and they, for you in this chapter, they become these theoretical touchstones for talking about ecofeminism and for other resistance, ways of resisting um, what's happening by facing the catastrophes and the ruins um, that we're making by having an ethical um, encounter with the catastrophe and with the ruin. And I, you know, just there, I think I mentioned before we started the interview that there was just an article about the Lone Star Tick and the way it's making its way further north and causing more and more human illness. So, so it makes a lot of sense given the sort of ethical turn that you're arguing for in the book, but 
but talk to us about ticks and mosquitoes and, and why the last chapter um, turns to them. So I can, I can say a little bit. Um, this is Lori again. And part of, part of what was so um, intriguing for us in thinking about ticks and mosquitoes at the end is um, of the book is that it, our relationships to them, as you just said, are so complicated. Um, there, we really want to make sure that um, we're not making it seem like any of this sort of work of trying to unpack various distortions in our relationships with the more than human world is easy or that we're going to live in some harmonious um place that we don't think that. And and if you look at ticks and mosquitoes, mosquitoes in particular, our apex predators um, have killed more human beings than any other cause ever. Um, Ticks are are getting up there. And at the same time, um, we're we're now we're killing them and and we're killing insects in such an intense way that um, our relationships are really deeply vexing. Um, so I think that was one of the things we had, we really did talk a lot about how we would, um, how, which, which animals would make the most sense for our final, our final chapter. Yeah. And you, you went for it with Jackson and Miska, I mean, cause it does go to the complexity. Well, yeah, I mean, we also, this is just a gloss on things that Lori just said, but but there's a, just to pick up another thread that runs through the book. So there is a way in which if you think about things Lori told us earlier about utilitarianism, we're criticizing the idea that moral thinking takes the form of generating a normative hierarchy between animals of various kinds and human beings and then applying it in particular cases. And then in other parts of the book, we're also bringing out how normative hierarchies of that sort, they're not just um, unhelpful or wrong as far as ethical theory goes, but they're politically pernicious in the sense of emerging from an expressive of historically longstanding, exploitative, and really violent practices that hurt human beings and animals alike. And so in a sense, one of the things we wanted to do at the end of the book, we really did spend a lot of time talking about which animal cases to use in each, in connection with our different themes. We wanted to use for its power the most dramatically counterintuitive illustration. So everything Laurie said is true. And also it made sense to focus on creatures of the kind that traditionally figure towards the hierarchy's bottom rungs. Yeah, no, it was it was helpful to me as a reader because I did have, I had a, a pretty hard, um, I don't know, like brace against those two. Uh, and so it was helpful that you worked through them in that last chapter. So I appreciate you taking on that, that complexity and the hierarchies in that way. Um, well, and so what are you each working on now? Um, well, I'm working on a bunch of things now. Um, I... I've been continuing my work on entangled empathy, which is um, basically a view about sort of rethinking our our 
um, how to do the kind of work of seeing animals and their the value of, of their lives and their relationships and our relationships to them with a certain set of skills. So um, it's a care-oriented ethical approach, um, but I'm moving it in political and social theoretical um, directions. I've also just recently published an edited volume with a uh, a very philosophically oriented attorney, Justin Marceau. It's called Carceral Logics, um, and it works. Um, it's work that I've done with a number with, that we've done with a number of animal law scholars and attorneys thinking about the carceral turn in animal protectionism. So that's something that um, was a really exciting project, but it's one that's going to have um, offshoots, um, and it brings together my interest in. Uh, other animals, as well as my interest in prisons. Um, and in addition, I'm also working on a little project, a set of projects and smaller projects on disabled animals. So Alice was mentioning earlier, and it's been very informative for our work together. Um, the, the insights that come from critical disability studies, um, but there's not been a lot of attention to what we can learn directly from disabled animals. So that's some of the work that um, I'm also engaged in. Well, um, like Lori, I'm working on a lot of things at the moment. And one of them, which Lori didn't mention, is something that um, it's almost finished. But Lori and I, together with Carol Adams, um, have been working on together where the three of us are co-editors of a forthcoming book, which is exciting. It's the first of its kind it's criticizing in ways that will make sense if you've listened to this interview. It's criticizing a utilitarianism-inspired philanthropic tradition called effective altruism. This is a tradition, if you know it, you know it, but it, you probably will hear about it if you haven't, because it's only about 10 years old, and it's just grown phenomenally during that time. Um, and now has uh, an incredibly substantial, really concrete financial effect on a lot of realms of practical engagement, including, but, but certainly by no means exclusively, animal advocacy. And our book is called The Good It Promises, The Harm It Does, Critical Essays on Effective Altruism. And most of the contributors are activists working in social justice movements, um, who are partly concerned with the treatment of animals. And they're bringing out how, with real force, how interventions based on utilitarian or effective altruist calculations of most good tend to reinforce the very harms that effective altruists aim to combat. That's a point that has real parallels with things Lori was saying earlier about um, how um, utilitarianism isn't um, giving us resources to criticize social structures that reproduce injustices. Anyway, the, we're about we've already we've just submitted that book relatively recently. It, no doubt there'll still be a little work coming down the line. One of my other projects related to things we're talking about today is finishing a book called Radical Animal, which. I actually started before Lori and I got to work on animal crisis and then put on hold. And it's about human-oriented social justice movements and about how efforts to re value animal life 
are decisively important for these movements. So in many ways, um, even though in style and structure, it's a really different book from Animal Crisis, it would be true to say that it addresses from a different direction some of the main concerns of the book we've been talking about. This is great. Well, thank you both for your time here today. Thank you so much. Thank you. 